0: I'm entitling this section of Scripture, The Minister's Weapons and Warfare. In chapter 10, verse 1, we read, Now, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you. That when I am present, I may not be bold with with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to oh, the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul's attention turns from the subject of giving, which he talked about in chapters eight and nine, and he will return to the issue of his ministry and his apostolic calling in the next few chapters. Paul will address some of the accusations that have been leveled against him. Paul's reply gives us clues. There were some in Corinth who didn't believe that Paul was a genuine apostle. And the reason why they did not believe that he was a genuine apostle is because there were those who accused him of insincerity and hypocrisy and that he lacked credentials from Jerusalem. And plus, he didn't look all that cool. He was short and squat and bald with failing eyesight. If you met Paul in person, you would think, wow, what a disappointment. Some accuse Paul of resorting to worldly means and methods in his ministry. But Paul wasn't insecure and he wasn't paranoid. He is really defending The apostolic office and the gospel itself and the message of Jesus, he is not concerned about himself in Corinth. There were false teachers who insisted on mixing Judaism and the gospel. And so when I say they insisted on mixing Judaism and the gospel, they were a group of teachers who suggested that the gospel was all well and good and grace was all well and good and love was all well and good and mercy was all well and good. But you, there was a deeper, richer tradition that you needed to subscribe to Judaism and you needed to follow Judaism. And you needed to observe the Mosaic Law, and you needed to observe the festivals. And in a very real sense, if you embraced the things of Judaism, then that was honoring and pleasing to God. In answering his critics, Paul like I said, isn't simply defending himself. He's answering Satan in verses 13 through 15. And in this short chapter, Paul will encourage the reader to follow Christ's example in verse 1. Use spiritual weapons in verses 2 through 6. Refuse to judge by appearance in verses 7 through 11. And then let God both commend you and defend you in verses 12 through 18. So Paul will speak of the Christian's Attitude in verses 1 through 6. Authority in verses 7 through 11. Approval in verses 12 through 18. So the theme of the chapter and the point of Paul's argument is going to be found in the last verse where at the end of the argument, when push comes to shove, In verse 18, he'll come to the conclusion for not he who commends himself is approved. But whom the Lord commends. That is. What really matters most isn't what you think or even what I think what matters most is what Jesus thinks. And so it begins with criticism and accusation. Look again in verse one. Now I, Paul. Remember, he's talked about Titus and Timothy earlier, and now he's he is drawing special attention to himself. He says, now I, Paul, myself, I'm pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. He speaks for himself and notice he says, I myself am pleading. He's. Pleading rather than dictating. He is appealing to a person's sensitivity. He bases his appeal upon the meekness and gentleness of Jesus. Weymouth translates this pleading with you by gentleness and reasonableness of Christ. By the way, this is one of the very few places... In the New Testament, where Paul is writing, where he is using the illustration of the earthly ministry of Jesus rather than the ascended ministry of Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the father in honor, praise and glory. He's drawing attention to the earthly ministry of Jesus, who was meek and gentle. And so Paul describes his ministry in meekness and gentleness. Lowly, look what he says, in your presence, but being absent, exercising courage. Another way of saying this, who in presence am lowly. The adjective in the original language is topenos in the Greek language. It meant to bring low. It also meant undistinguished. And in a negative sense or a bad sense, it meant subservient or abject. In other words, it was the idea of lowliness being someone that you would look at and you wouldn't really give a second thought. Paul's critics accuse Paul of being timid. That's another word. Lowly. And I'm going to suggest to you that Paul... Is using a little bit of irony. Mixed with just a a hint of sarcasm. Remember the critics accused Paul of being a coward in their presence. But that he had a lot of smack that he was willing to talk about when he was writing and when he was far away and no one could answer his objections. So they're basically accusing Paul of being a coward in real life, but in absence, he was bold or courageous. Now, this brings up something, and that is the reality of how human beings love celebrity. And there are certain cultures that love it more than other cultures. I want to suggest to you that our culture really loves celebrity. Celebrity. We live in a world where you can be famous for simply being famous. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to have a gift or a talent. You don't have to make a meaningful contribution to art or science. We live in a world where people can be famous for being famous. And the Corinthians were, in a very real sense, not very different. There there hasn't been many things that have changed over the years. As Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, they love celebrity. The Corinthians were taken in by a group of preachers who had come from Jerusalem and Palestine. And these were the TV and radio evangelists of their day. With the cool hair and the three-piece suits, they were coming with the royal robes from Jerusalem and they were... Preaching a message of grace mixed with duty and law that the true Christian had to observe and keep the law. These Judaizers preached a false gospel, and we know that from the very next chapter, we're just going to take a little sneak peek. In chapter 11, verse 4, it says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit of which we have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And these people were taking unfair advantage of them. Look at verse 18. It says, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you in the face. Now, This sounds crazy, doesn't it? It sounds crazy that's, that people would go, here's the person I want to be my Bible teacher. I want the person who takes advantage of me and who rips me off and who who <laughs> robs me blind. I want the kind of pastor that will kick me in the face at a re, at a revival. And I know what you're thinking. That's not the kind of pastor I want. But these are the kinds of people who were... Taking advantage of the Corinthians. And you might think, well, that, that doesn't happen. Or does it? Are there people who take advantage of people's immaturity or gullibility? Warren Wearsby writes, quote, they were welcomed by the church, these false teachers, and honored above Paul, who had founded the church and risked his life for the church. Paul is so weak, these teachers said, as they lorded it over the church. Follow us because we have real power. If I am weak, Paul replied, it's not weakness, but meekness. Christ never lorded it over people. His power was exercised in meekness and humility. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. The ability to be angry at sin, yet willing to suffer abuse for the sake of Christ, unquote. And so, Paul writes, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, remember, some accused Paul of carnality, of walking after the flesh. Let me explain in the New Testament what is meant by that word flesh. It doesn't mean just simply the muscle and tissue and epidermal layer that is on the surface of your skin. It's not just the meat and organs that hang from your body. The flesh, depending on the context, can mean human nature or it can mean who we are apart from Christ. And that's usually how Paul uses the word the So, again, it can mean human being. It can mean human nature. It can mean human nature that is the way that we walk and talk and act apart from Christ. And so the religious leaders, the false teachers were basically saying that Paul wasn't even really saved, that he wasn't born again. That Paul was preaching and ministering in the flesh... That he didn't really care about God and he didn't wasn't really called by God. Perhaps Paul was ungodly or immoral, seeking only to please himself. Um, was he simply looking for a following in order to sell his ideas or his positions? Was he looking for personal recognition or honor? And so Paul promises, guess what? For those of you who basically say that that's who I am, look what it says in verse 2. I intend to be bold against some. Let's pause for a moment. And we've asked and answered this question in our study in the book of 2 Corinthians. Was Paul the object and subject of unjust criticism? I think the answer is yes. Was he the object and the subject of ill treatment? Abuse. Unjust abuse, false reports, personal abuse. You know what I think the answer is? Yeah. What generated this attack? His labors in the gospel. For over a year and a half, he had given himself to prayer. He had given himself to teaching in that region. He had given himself with bringing the gospel, bringing the story of hope and love and salvation and redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. He had given them the gospel. A church had formed and he continued the work of the ministry. And then other people showed up. Other people who said. You know what? Paul is milk. And Paul. Is only giving you a superficial understanding. If you really want to know the deep things of God. If you really want to know the most important things about God. If you want to plumb the depths of the riches of insight and superior understanding. Guess what? We can give that to you. And this was part of the problem. You see. When the churches had attained some level of maturity and self-sufficiency, Paul would move on. And when he left, local enemies who were sent by Satan to sabotage the church would show up. And they weren't content to just simply teach false doctrine. They felt the need to sabotage his character and his reputation. And so the false teachers had succeeded in seducing some, in turning some away from Paul, away from the gospel, in order to hinder his usefulness and service. And so when Paul moved out, other people moved in. When Paul left, Then there were some people who would show up in an attempt to fill the void. And you see, they weren't just interested in sabotaging his character and his reputation. The false teachers wanted to cement the people's affections by destroying their affections for Paul as well. It wasn't good enough that they try to destroy and ruin his reputation. They also wanted to sever the affection and turn Paul's converts away from Paul and the gospel. In order. That they would be lifted up. They felt that Paul had to be held in contempt. Now, I want you to think about how serious this is. But in spite of the seriousness of the danger, Paul Paul Paul's warning is bathed in meekness and gentleness. Paul pleads with them twice in two verses. To turn to the Lord. To turn away from their unfounded attacks and the false teachings. So that Paul wouldn't have to confront them. Do you understand what Paul is doing? He's basically saying. I think it would be best. If you would just simply remove the challenge. But if you don't want to remove the challenge. I'm prepared to defend my apostolic authority. And my apostolic integrity. Paul's heart was that each member of the church would trust Jesus as the Savior. That they would hold fast to the truth of the gospel. That they would stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together in the faith, in the gospel. That's exactly the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. In a perfect world, Jesus is the Savior. The truth of the gospel stands. We have unity in mind and spirit and faith. And so it says in in verse three, Paul moves to the issue of the spiritual battle. He says, for though we walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. And so again, here's the idea. For though we walk in the flesh, in what way? In the sense that we're human. We are human beings with human minds and human emotions and human limitations. We are human beings. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. What does that mean? Like I said, in the Bible, the flesh is sometimes used to describe human existence. The apostles are living human lives and human bodies, but they're not waging warfare according to human motives or human methods. What does that mean? Paul is going to explain it. He says, yes, there is a physical world and yes, there's a spiritual world in verse four for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, the Christian doesn't use guns or swords or knives or modern weapons or the strategies of modern warfare in presenting and declaring the gospel. Have you found it effective to reach your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your friends with with the gospel by going, if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to punch you right in the nose. Helpful or unhelpful? That's unhelpful. this week, Al-Qaeda operatives beheaded a Catholic priest in Syria. Now, can you imagine if your religious sentiment is, Please agree with me or I'm going to cut your head off. Doesn't that sound lovely? Doesn't that sound like something that you would want to be your religion of choice? Where here's the deal. Follow or die. No, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Those carnal methods Are not the ones the apostles used. Now, I want you to just pause for a moment and think about what Paul is saying. What do you mean, Paul? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty. We may think that wealth or power or glory or fluency or influence or being clever Can accomplish the goals of the gospel. But what are the goals of the gospel? The goals of the gospel are to get people to turn from their sin, to turn to the Savior, to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. So when Paul says for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, he's basically suggesting that carnal meaning human. Using human methods and human methodologies, carnal methods are weak, really empty. Carnal methods are those methods approved by and used by carnal people. So Paul is surrounded in that world by all kinds of sinful philosophies and systems of thought and religions whose origins rested in the rebellion and disobedience of Satan and sinful men. So Paul is living in a world just like the world in which you and I live where people want the kind of religion where everyone is accepted and embraced without regard to to who they are or how they act. And by who they are, I don't mean black, white, male, female. I'm talking about people who are willing to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. Human philosophy and human religion Can't save a single sinner. Can't forgive a single sin. Can't create a single new life. Can't promise heaven. And see, this is part of the key. When Paul says that our methods aren't carnal, he is going to use the methods... That has been entrusted to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to contrast the carnal methods with the spiritual methods. Our weapons of warfare are mighty in God. So what are the methods that are mighty through God for pulling down the strongholds? The weapons of Our warfare are mighty. I'm just going to give you just a quick preview before we continue. The weapons of our warfare are faith in the living God. It's trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the cross of Calvary. It's prayer. It's obedience and submission to the word of God. These are the effective weapons of every true soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are those weapons, the mighty weapons, faith in the living God, prayer, obedience to the word of God, the person of Jesus, the cross of Christ? The reason why is because these are the things that will ultimately transform your life. Matthew Henry wrote, the Bible is a letter that God has sent to us. Prayer is the letter that we send to him. We sometimes fail to appreciate just how wonderful and powerful and effective our weapons are. Faith in the living God, prayer, obedience to the word of God. Now, the, the way we think about this is we contrast them with the weak and pitiful weapons of mankind. What are the weapons of human warfare? Rebellion, unbelief, doubt. Pride, disobedience, selfishness. If you really want what you want, make them give it to you. Is that the weapons of our warfare? No. The pitiful and weak weapons of human beings rebellion, unbelief, doubt, disobedience. Look at the character of our weapons. They're not carnal, but they're spiritual through God. Do you understand what Paul means when he says for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God? The reason why this becomes such an important point for each and every one of us is Paul points out the reality that our weapons are both spiritual and then connected to God. Do you know what happens when you have a weapon that is connected to God? You have a weapon that has all of the power, the authority, the glory, the dignity of God himself. If the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, and if they're connected to God, that means that the power of the gospel... Is connected to God and the person of Jesus is connected to God and prayer connects us to God and then obedience and submission to the word of God and the character of God brings about the transformation of the human heart. That's the point that Paul is making. They connect the Christian with the invisible power of God. Our weapons link us with his divine energy. We are united with an irresistible power and might. So instead of telling a person, you'll never change. Versus, God can change you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're always going to be evil. No. The reality is, if any person's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You'll never be different. You'll never change. No. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that each and every one of us are in the process of being changed. So Paul's going to elaborate on the strongholds for the weapons of our warfare, not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of the strongholds in the very next verse. By the way, the word stronghold meant fortress, and here it's used as a metaphor for the thoughts and reasons that people use to fortify their opinion or defend their suppositions or assertions. But here, for the pulling down of strongholds, are every single human thought and idea that stands in opposition to God. On my radio program, I had a call from a lady today. And she said... You know, Christianity seems to be a religion that's very judgmental and unwelcoming. Christians don't welcome people. And and by the way, you believe in a God who is wrathful and vengeful and sends people to hell. And I said... You know, the Bible actually speaks of God as being a loving God and a gracious God and a kind God and a good God and a merciful God. But he's also a just God. I want you to just think for a moment in your own heart, in your own mind, most sinners, unbelievers, unbelievers are willing to concede that God is a God of love and that God is a God of mercy and that God is a God who is good, but they're unwilling to believe that God is just. Will God punish sin? Must God punish sin? And so people create fortresses In their mind and in their heart, a fortress that they dare the gospel and the Christian to confront. What kind of a God is God? How am I supposed to deal with this problem of sin? And so Paul writes. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Arthur S. Way renders this verse in such an electric and exciting way. He writes, I can batter down bulwarks of human reason. I can scale every crag fortress that towers up bidding defiance to the true knowledge of God. I I can make each rebel purpose my prisoner of war and bow it into the submission to the Messiah. That's so good. In what way? We belong to Jesus. We conquer by love rather than by hate. We conquer by faith and not by the flesh. We conquer by prayer and not by propaganda. And so Paul, in that verse, is basically giving us the methodology that we can use to conquer evil and to bring down the strongholds, he gives three strategies. Number one, we cast down imaginations. Number two, we cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Number three, we capture our thought and then we bring it into submission and obedience to Jesus. And the word, by the way, casting down arguments, the word translated arguments or, or imaginations is very interesting in the original language. It's the, it's the word logismos. You know the word logo. It's that, that word, the word that means word or thought or idea. Logismos is the quality of reasoning. It is the sum and the substance of thoughts and thought patterns. So here, when he says casting down arguments, he's really talking about thinking. Thinking. What kind of thinking? He's actually (laughs) thinking about stinking thinking. How do I know that? Because it's the kind of thinking that excludes God and revelation. It's the kind of thinking that says, I want an explanation for the world apart from God. Why is there something rather than nothing apart from God? Why do human beings exist apart from God? Why is there suffering and sin apart from God? How do I have a full and a happy life apart from God? Question. Does the Bible seem to suggest that you can have a happy, fulfilled life apart from God? No. So again, here's the thought process. I want to live my life but I don't want to go to church and I don't want to read the Bible and I don't want Jesus and I don't want the God stuff. I don't want any of that stuff. Paul saw himself as a soldier warring against the proud reasoning of sinful human beings who are looking for explanations apart from God and apart from Christ. This is why the satanic strategy is convince me That there's a God, but don't use the Bible. Convince me about the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God. But don't bring up the Bible. Or don't talk about Jesus. Now, here's what we know, according to the Bible. God spoke in different ways at different times in times past, but He has in these last days spoken to us by His own dear Son, Jesus. In 1 John chapter 1 and in chapter 2, John the Apostle writes, he basically asks this question, Do you really, really want to know what God is like? His answer, then look at Jesus. If you look at Jesus the way Jesus lived and loved and spoke and dealt with people, you're going to get a perfect example of what God is like. Reason isn't the Christian's enemy. Our opposition may come from scientists and it may come from evolutionists and it may come from philosophers and it may come from religionists. But they are scientists and evolutionists and philosophers and religionists who don't have room for God or at least not the God of the Bible. They're willing to entertain a higher power or a supernatural source. What kind of a higher power and what kind of a supernatural source? The kind of higher power and supernatural source that can create something out of nothing, that can create the earth and the heavens and the galaxies and the borders of space time itself. We're not opposed to science or philosophy or religion. We simply want to address science and philosophy. And religion on the basis of the revelation that's been given to us by God in Christ Jesus. We don't think that that's unreasonable. We think that that's reasonable. We think it's reasonable that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and done all of the things that are recorded in the New Testament, including a resurrection from the dead. So the Apostle Paul doesn't simply feel the need to agree to disagree agreeably. The Apostle Paul doesn't leave reasoning and speculation that leave out God and Christ and the gospel and idle speculation of mere men. Paul includes the word of God and the revelation of God and the gospel of Christ to inform teaching and idea and thoughts and speculations about reality. Paul doesn't condemn human reason. Or even human reasoning. But there's a warning. For those who exercise reason. In defiance of God. And Christ. And disobedience to God. And Christ. So our spiritual weapons include. The promises of God. And the word of God. This is why. This is why we pay such close attention to the Bible. This is why we want to spend our time opening this Bible and reading this Bible and learning from this Bible. And also, to I'm trying to convince you that if you come on Wednesdays, I'm so glad that you do. And if you come on Sundays, hallelujah. But Wednesday and Sunday is never going to give you a sufficient understanding of the Bible in order for you to wage war. You're going to have to read your Bible every single day and it should be your whole purpose in life in part at least to open it up and know what it says so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil so you can address the opposition that comes from the world so that you can answer your own sinful and selfish desires. The Bible is a book of divine power. And I want to point something else out to you. The Word of God has survived all of its enemies. You can't trust the Bible. Oh, that person's dead. You can't trust the Bible. That person dies. The Bible will never be helpful. I found this quote from a, from a, um, From Roy Lauren, he writes, quote, the empire of Caesar is gone. The legions of Rome are moldering in the dust. The avalanches that Napoleon hurled upon Europe have melted away. The pride of the pharaohs have fallen. The pyramids they have raised to be their tombs are sinking every day in desert sands. Yeah, that's pretty interesting considering Cairo just fell again today. Tyre is the rock for bleaching fishermen's nets. Sidon has scarcely left a wreck behind, but the word of God still survives. All things that threaten to extinguish it have, a- and have only aided it and only proves every day how transient the noblest monument that man can build, how enduring is the least word of God has spoken. Tradition has dug for it a grace. Intolerance has served as a match to attempt to set it on fire. Many a Judas has betrayed it with a kiss. Many a Demas has forsaken it. But the word of God Still endures. Unquote. Selfishness, wickedness, come and go. And so Paul writes, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. What is he basically saying? And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let me help you understand, I'm hoping, the context. How does the minister deal with rebellion, with disobedience, with criticism? The genuine believer is given the opportunity to come forward. Paul, in this particular passage has over and over and over again appealed to the real Christian. A real Christian will look to the satisfying solution of the Bible as the solution to conflict or problems or disagreements. Paul isn't afraid to punish disobedience. The Corinthians who are willing to come forward and submit to the truth are being given the opportunity To withdraw the challenge and say, no, all of the evidence seems to be, Paul, you really are an apostle. All of the evidence seems to point to that the gospel of grace and the gospel of Christ, the gospel that saves you, that forgives you, that cleanses you, that changes you, is the gospel that Paul was preaching. And I I want you to point something else out to you. Does Paul act in severity or in gentleness? It's gentleness. If you really stop and you pause and you look at what Paul is saying, he doesn't act in severity. At least until he knows for sure that there are two kinds of people. Those who stand in the truth. And those who stand against the truth. There are people who stand in the truth and there are people who stand outside of the truth. And Paul wants to make sure through every means of repentance and correction that all means of repentance and correction have been exhausted. I don't understand what you mean. Why am I saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone? I don't understand what you mean about the Trinity. I don't understand what you mean about this. I don't understand what you mean about that. Hey, you know what? It's okay for us not to understand everything about everything. But so let's sit down and talk about that. So that we can come to a conclusion that honors God and honors the word of God. Paul wants to make sure every means of repentance and correction have been exhausted before Discipline. But he is ready to punish all disobedience in what sense. This letter should serve as a warning. What's the corrective action available to the church? Well, church discipline, by the way, is talked about by Paul in First Corinthians chapter five, verses one through five. I don't have time to really go over it, but let me just quickly tell you in first corinthians chapter five he's already written he says deliver such a one to satan In verse one, he says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord. Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Do you know what he's saying? He's basically saying don't go to Matthew 18. Don't take one or two or witnesses. Kick him out. Right now. Kick him out right now. Why? Because this is so, so wrong. How can you not see that this is wrong. Paul wrote to Timothy in First Timothy chapter five, verse twenty: "Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others may fear." Titus three ten: "Reject a divisive man after the first and the second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned." Does Paul discipline? Apart from grace, apart from mercy, apart from understanding, apart from a generous willingness to try and work it out. He's making every effort to try and work it out. President Lincoln was once asked about his attitude towards his enemies. Someone criticized Lincoln and said, why do you try to make friends of them? You should try to destroy them. And Lincoln responded. Am I not destroying my enemies, Lincoln replied gently, when I make them my friends? Isn't that the best way to get rid of an enemy? Make him or her your friend? Paul isn't trying to get rid of his enemies. He's trying to make them friends on what basis on the basis of Christ, on the basis of the revelation of Christ, on the basis of the gospel of Christ. George Washington said to be prepared for war is one of the most effectual means of preserving peace. I think it's true in the real world. But it's also true in the spiritual world. To be prepared for war is the most effectual means of preserving peace because we are at war with the world and with the flesh and with the devil. We're citizens of two worlds, earth and heaven. William Temple wrote, we Christians at war are called to the hardest of all tasks to fight without hatred, to resist without bitterness. And in the end, if God grant it so, to triumph without vindictiveness. Winston Churchill once referred to his opponents in the British Parliament as those who were, his words, quote, decided only to be undecided, resolved. Only to be irresolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity, all-powerful to be impotent. Unquote. It was Churchill's way of saying that his enemies would never come to a decision. They would never resolve to stand anywhere. And as you know. The man or woman who won't stand for something will eventually fall for anything. So Paul's determined to be meek. And not weak. Paul refuses to resort to satanic tactics. Paul will use mighty weapons to knock down Satan's strongholds. And later in this chapter, Paul's enemies will say that Paul possesses no power or authority. He writes like a lion, but in reality, he's a lamb. And Paul's response, I think, is going to surprise you. He's going to basically tell the critic that he has the power and the authority of Jesus. In both the things that he writes and in the things that he says, he refuses to compare himself with other men. He will only compare himself with one man the risen Savior, Jesus. In the end, Paul prays that the Corinthians' faith will grow in verses 14 and 15, that they'll be given the opportunity to preach the gospel in verses 16 and 17. Because the only approval that really matters is the approval that comes from God. You see, you're going to be embroiled in a battle. And the weapons that you bring will determine the outcome of the conflict. It depends on what you really want to see happen. If you want to see a person saved, you're going to have to give them the gospel. If you want to see a person forgiven, they're going to have to be given hope. And if you want to see a person change, then you've got to give them the tools In order to make the change. And that's why the weapons of our warfare are spiritual and mighty in God. Because the moment that you tell a person that there is hope in Christ. That there is forgiveness in Christ. That there is joy and love and eternal life in Christ. You have attached yourself to God's message. And God's Messiah. We're going to have communion in just a moment. What I want you to do is just hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. Lord, each and every one of us are going to be tempted to try to solve a problem or resolve a conflict to answer a criticism or abuse using methods that are not spiritual methods that are carnal and selfish and so heavenly father we pray that right from the start we would be willing to honor you that lord we would begin to realize that The conflicts that we are experiencing aren't just with flesh, but with supernatural beings. No wonder Paul will later write to the Ephesians and tell them that our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Thrones, dominions, spiritual authorities, wickedness and heavenly on high and. And Lord, we we sometimes forget that there is a supernatural battle raging all around us. And every once in a while, we are enlisted to take part in the battle. To be soldiers and wage war. But Lord, again, we know what our mission is. That our brothers and our sisters are in a very dark place. Being held captive by Satan. Lord, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, those scales would be lifted and that they would hear the gospel and respond to the message of love that a real Jesus died on a real cross in order to save us. And so, Lord, I pray that each person within the sound of my voice would make Jesus, Lord, turn from sin. Embrace the Savior, live for him, and love him. In Jesus' name, amen.